Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast. So Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The thing about I guess having a drug habit is that in a lot of ways it's like Groundhog Day because every day you wake up and you need to get money. You've got to get on the train and go around to the shopping centres and then steal stuff and then sell it and then you've got to get the train to Cabra and you've got to score and then you've got to find somewhere to use. I was not at all cognizant that that was a 
side effect of using heroin every day was that if you don't have it, it will make you really ill. Our guest today has a story so large, we've decided to split it up into two episodes, and you'll hear part two on Thursday. For reasons that will become apparent and definitely understandable, our guest has chosen to remain anonymous. She was raised mostly in a single father household alongside her sister, and her upbringing was far from ordinary. Her turbulent relationship with her mother added to the complexity of her early years, and although today she's not only a law-abiding citizen who has had a long career in social work, in the past, she was anything but. We begin our conversation with our guest telling us about her earliest childhood memories. I would, uh, look, I would consider myself incredibly lucky for lots and lots of reasons. My sister and I had the most amazing dad. My mum left when I was about four. My sister was two. My dad had been quite a successful bank manager and my mother had a harebrained scheme to move to Harden in outback New South Wales and buy a pub. Uh, my mother's Welsh, so they're very big drinking kind of culture anyway. So yeah, they'd moved to Harden, taken over a pub. You know, my mum had like a sawn off pool cube behind the counter to, you know, like move the ruffians along when they got out of control. Was that her background, her family background? Were they publicans? or She they... was a nurse. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. Yeah, she was a nurse. Look, I mean, she's got a pretty, probably difficult story of her own. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, which we absolutely know that's how it works, right? Absolutely. Trauma begets trauma. Yeah, so uprooted their nice life in inner city Sydney and moved to Harden, which is like in the middle of absolute nowhere. And your husband's a banker. He's hardly yeah. built for it. Yeah, totally. And he was pretty much a teetotaler, my dad. Mum, you know, hooked up with the local, I don't know, bloke and oh. left. Uh and then, you know, Dad ended up having to kind of pack up my sister and I and uh, we moved back to Sydney. So we're talking about the 80s? Yeah. And he's he's a single dad to two little girls? Yeah. That's, that would have been weird at that yep. time? Yep, absolutely. Uh, Look, he worked full time. My sister and I used to get taxis home from school every day. He went bankrupt owning the pub and kind of came back to Sydney and had to, you know, rebuild from very little. So he was a career for the last kind of 20 years of his life, self-employed. He really liked it. But uh, for us, if we had a day off school because we were sick, we had to go to work with him. Mm -hmm. In the van. Yeah. Uh, Which, look, actually was really enjoyable and I totally knew how to read a map. And it was quite funny because I look back now because he used to wear the little shorts (laughs) and so all the reception ladies loved his legs. Um, I totally, like, remember that now. Uh, Yeah, yeah, he never repartnered. My mother... Uh, so for pretty much my entire childhood, which she was absent, so she's a raging alcoholic, she wasn't there uh, from about the age of four until I was about 16, which is when my father died. So she came back maybe three months before he died, and uh, we've had her ever since. But uh, she certainly heard lots of stories. So my dad was really a great bloke. He was a great quintessential Aussie bloke. We went camping and... He was really big on fishing and we did lots of stuff with him. We were very rarely home on the weekends. And so, you know, in a lot of ways had a pretty idyllic childhood 
from that perspective. Up until 16, though, you're still a child at 16. So that's, um, was it an illness? Was it a long? Yeah, yeah. um, Liver cancer, ironically enough, for the teetotaler. And uh, yeah, my mother, she has this very idyllic perspective of our childhood. So she doesn't ever acknowledge that she was gone. And she recounts stories that we have told her about things that we did with our dad. <laughs> and is, she tells them as though she were there? Yeah, yeah, which is really weird. So I've worked in mental health for 20 years and I still couldn't really hazard a guess about the diagnosis. She's also a bit of a uh, confabulator. So, you know, she always had these amazing plans that never, ever came to fruition. But look, she was just an agent of chaos. So she... Uh, Kidnapped us a few times, took us to Wales, back to her family. My God. Yeah, that one was a bit shit. In the middle of the night, took our dad's car and his keycard and bought flights to the UK. And we, yep, ended up in Wales. There was a return order, like a legal return order. Uh, So we were over there for about 12 months before we came back. And then she did it again. So I started school in Wales where they only speak Welsh. It was really shit because I went over there and then had a Welsh, uh, an Australian accent, and so everyone thought that was really funny. Then I'd come back to Australia and have a Welsh accent, mm-hmm. and then I went back to Wales, and then I came back to Australia. It was very bad for the accent. Yeah, and very bad for a little kid. She's turned you into an outsider again totally. and again and again. And look, her boyfriends, I mean, she is way more nuts than any of them ever were. But, you know, she never, she didn't pick well. Apart from your dad. Yeah. She was really volatile, you know, and quite uh, violent. She came and picked us up after school one day and was like, no, no, your dad totally knows, and then took us to Lake's entrance. And what she would do is she would come with the boyfriend and then take us somewhere. Obviously, our dad actually had no idea where we were, so that would have been very awful for him. But the weird part is because she would then just go to the pub right or give us like a bag of coins to go and play like the in the video games arcade so there was one night and I would have only been seven or eight my sister was probably six or seven and I rang my dad who came and picked us up but when um when she and the boyfriend came home and I told them that our dad was on his way uh her boyfriend hung me over the balcony by my foot because he was very cranky Yeah, so, you know, she didn't really pick good men. My goodness. My God, how frightening. Mm. How frightening to walk out of the school gate and see her there and Mm. have all of that responsibility as the oldest sister. Mm. You're responsible for your baby sister and just thinking, what the fuck? What now? Yeah, I think the hard thing was, you know, as a kid, you don't kind of... Kids are really egocentric, so they believe that everything happens around them and because of them. Yep. So uh, I think we always believed her when she said she was back and that she would stay. We always believed her, probably up until adolescence, I reckon. We all have got to come to terms with the fact that our parents aren't the people that we think that they are when we're growing up. Mm. It's just that some of us have to contend with that a lot earlier than other people do. Look, I think what it did for me is that I had really overdeveloped attachments to like my friends' families. Mm. So, you know, particularly the mothers 
And I think, you know, my dad would be very upfront that as a middle-aged Aussie bloke, particularly from the kind of 80s and 90s, that his, you know, concept of how to grow up girls and women was probably not that well developed. You know, just one day packets of pads turned up. On your bed? Yeah. We'd never had to talk (laughs) about it. You know, and I'm a bit like, what am I meant to do with, what, like, what are these? Yeah. yeah, where do they go? Sorry, what? Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So those things he was quite awkward about. Mm-hmm. And look, uh, I'm also incredibly lucky because uh, I'm bright. So, you know, kind of gifted student at school oh, and, wonderful. you know, quite verbal, quite likeable. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I know having worked in the child protection system is that People, kids who are likeable can generally get their needs met one way or the other. Yeah. It's the kids who nobody likes, who really don't have a good prognosis. So Absolutely. Uh, I was really lucky, you know, I had a lot of teachers who took me under their wing. I didn't study a language, but the language department loved me. So I would go on all their uh, school excursions. and <laughs> <laughs> Even though you didn't do a yeah. language, that's hilarious. Yeah, that's I went great. to um, South Australia with them for the German class. I didn't do German though. So did you spin out? The minute your dad died, or was this sort of happening in the lead up? Because so far, what we're hearing is one minute you're like this great kid at school who everyone loves so much so that you're going <laughs> to Adelaide with the German club and you mm. don't even learn German. Yeah. I guess that the first time I got drunk, because uh, again, my mother would come and thought it was really funny. So I think I was probably 11 or 12. To give you alcohol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she also, um, so she's lived all over Australia and she's kind of been wanted all over Australia because she's a bit of a con artist. It's weird, but she was quite charismatic back in the day and people believed her and would give her money for, you know, her harebrained schemes that never came true. But eventually, you know, that would start to catch up with her and she'd have to move states. Because in those days, that's the other thing, you could. You totally could. People would go on the run, like to Perth. Yeah, that's how I ended and up just, in Melbourne. Yeah. From Sydney. So um, even... When she wasn't interstate and she was living nearby, she ran boarding houses with varying kind of degrees of closeness. So, you know, these are like, they're not, I don't know if they really exist these days where there would be like somebody who lived there and she'd cook and kind of keep the house in order. Yeah, Emily and I were talking that a few about that a few weeks ago, weren't we? Like how this thing was in Australia for years and years that today we'd think, too dangerous, that's crazy hmm. for a single woman. Oftentimes an older woman who'd been, like, widowed or whatever would open her home to strange men. Mm. Yeah, randos. Yeah. So she had, yeah, she ran a number of boarding houses. Um, I grew up in Campsie in in her ish city, Sydney, and then Strathfield, home of the massacre Mm -hmm. uh, after that. So, yeah, she had rooming houses or boarding houses. So I'm hearing, so did you, were you expected to go and stay with her? No, no, no your dad never let you. Because I was going to say, I'm, I was hearing a lot of exposure to randos for oh, you I and mean, your sister. We were there a bit. And yes, there were plenty of randos. Mm. But I guess that um, concurrently to all of that. So when we lived in Campsie, we lived in a block of flats and our neighbour uh, is was a pedophile. This is when you were living with your dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's obviously a lot more to this aspect of the story and we'll delve into it more deeply on Thursday's edition of Australian True Crime. But after this break on today's show, we'll find out how our guest picked up a $5,000 a day heroin addiction. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So, but then as you were getting older, were you, and your mum started your drinking, but did you start looking for alcohol yourself as a coping mechanism? Yeah. So my dad um, got liver cancer and Mm. my mother came back. So we'd moved to Strathfield by that point and we were quite close to the high school. So we used to walk to and from school and stuff and had friends around and um, I ended up with uh, a friend from high school moving in, kind of my first girlfriend, but, you know, not that it was that because it was the 90s. But, yeah, it was funny because mum was always very sus on the boys. Never thought about the girls though. (laughs) I love that. I know. Bless. Totally fine to share a bed when you're girls. So, look, the first time I stayed out all night without coming home was when he was in hospital dying, which at the time, I think it's really hard because you don't really get that death is coming. No. And even at 16, I probably didn't really get how dire the situation was. He died really quickly. So from when he was diagnosed to death was about three months. Oh, my God. That's incredibly quick. Yes. He died very quickly. The thing was my, you know, she was chaos. She's always hung out in boarding houses or she would always have a local. So she was down at the Horse and Jockey, which is right near the Flemington Markets, and she would, like, at the end of closing, you know, if they were still kicking on, they would all come back. So my mum had a little Datsun 180B. It's not funny, but I remember her driving with, like, ten people inside and two people sitting in the boot with the boot open, hanging their legs out. Back to your place. Yeah, back to our house, you know. So, and it didn't matter if it was a school night or, like, none of that mattered. So, yeah, with my little mate who I'd picked up, we went out and partied and went into the city in Sydney. We were, like, 16, 17, hanging out in Newtown, buying bottles of Passion Pop and sculling them, like, before we went out. Nothing actually really bad ever happened on any of those excursions. 
They totally could have, but they didn't. I'd been on track to do vet science. My dad was very, very into education and very, very focused on us both getting a good education and kind of going on to further study. So uh, I was pretty driven to get into uni in spite of all of the kind of chaos, but he died at the end of year 11. So, you know, the kind of spectacular marks I was potentially on my way to did not eventuate. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I got into an arts degree, which he would have hated, but, you know, (laughs) that's okay. So I picked up a boyfriend somewhere along the way. He was a pub denizen of my mother's. He was quite a bit older, probably like eight, seven, eight years older. I mean, I was only 17 at the time. He was involved in the car trade and I moved out with him, I reckon, just after I turned 18. I was going to Sydney Uni and studying and we'd moved to the other side of Sydney to this house of someone that he knew who we were house-sitting for while they lived overseas. It was a really beautiful house. He came with a number of hangers-on of his own. So me and his kind of dropkick mates lived in this beautiful house looking after their poor border collie. And, you know, I was smoking a lot of pot. He picked up this kid. I reckon was probably only 16. I mean, I was only 18. I was only a kid myself. But the kid was like a detailer at the yards, had a pretty complicated background himself. He moved in with us and, you know, one day they came home and they had heroin and they smoked it and they said it was amazing and I was a bit like, oh, heroin, oh, my God, losers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I reckon it probably took maybe a week or two and I was like, all right, fine. You keep talking about how good it is, fine. So the thing about heroin, though, is it is an anaesthetic, right? It's very strongly correlated with trauma. Yeah, absolutely. It's mm. no... Uh, surprise that, that or no coincidence that a lot of people with traumatic childhoods or you know um, youths end up with heroin addictions. Mm-hmm. Is there? Well, obviously it's a good physical pain reliever, mm. but it also slows everything down. Mm. Um, so you know if you're prone to panic attacks or like intrusive thoughts or whatever, what better way than to spend your life half asleep? And you know we were quite at that point. He was working. I was at uni full-time and uh, all the other people in the household were also, and we were, you know, we're only doing it at night, we weren't doing it all day. I guess the big thing for us was that we were smoking, not injecting, you know, in junkies inject. We were just users. Like, it's interesting how you rationalise all of that stuff at the time. So, yeah, so we started smoking. I think I finished the first semester of uni dropped out by the second semester. Happens quick. It was very quick. Doesn't it? And so by the end of that first year from, you know, we had a really nice house in the National Park, working, uni, like we had quite a good outward life away from my mother. Um, We were homeless and we'd moved back in with my mother, which is when my sister was doing her HSC. I wasn't doing anything at that point. So really all I was doing was hanging around the house, annoying my sister while he went to work to make money. And as if he'd wasted on rent. So his money was going on gear and then that's when your sister said, can I have a go? Yeah, look, I don't totally remember again how that happened, but I remember catching the train from Strathfield to Cabra because Cabra was like banging in those days, like every person was selling gear. Uh, So... I remember getting the train, scoring, and that we went under a 
block of flats and shut up, which I think was probably the first time I'd done it. Mm. And that, yeah, I injected her and then we spewed everywhere and caught the best train ride of our lives back to mum's house and, I don't know, nodded off all afternoon. Well, that's the other thing, yeah. I think maybe people who've never used don't realise when you spew, it's not doesn't mean it's all gone. No, mm. no, no, no. She stopped. So she kind of was a bit of a wake-up that this was going nowhere good. So did you start stealing to pay for gear? Yeah, and look, again, the thing about, um, I guess, having a drug habit is that in a lot of ways it's like Groundhog Day because every day you wake up um, and you need to get money. So over time we got to be manageable enough to have a shot in the morning so when we woke up we weren't sick. Sundays always sucked because lots of stuff wasn't open on Sundays. Really hard to get money. Easter sucked and Christmas sucked. Because oh, in those days everything really was shut on Christmas yeah. Day and Good Friday. Yeah. Everything. And so you needed to kind of get enough to be able to pay, you know, for tomorrow and the next day as well, which mm. that's an awful lot of organisation. And I think recently that most of us have had COVID you know when you're really sick with COVID and you've, but you're like, oh, I'm so sick, but I've got to find myself Panadol or something. Yep. Like even getting off the couch or getting off the bed and going, looking around the house for something like that that you need is so hard and you can't believe you have to do that, but you have to do that because you know that's your only chance to feel a little bit better. Yeah. And later on, I thought to myself, God, this is what it's like being a drug addict when you're hanging, isn't it? When yeah. you are hanging out, when you're withdrawing and you know you have to do it. It's the hardest thing you have to do in your life. But the only way you can feel better is to all do the it. steps you have to go through. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, I've got to get money. And then I've got to get gear. Mm-hmm. I've got to go out of the house and I've got to make all these things happen. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the worst? It is. And because when he stopped working, he stopped having the cars. Oh. Yeah. So then you've got to get on the train and go around to the shopping centres and then steal stuff. And then sell it. And then you've got to get the train to Cabra and you've got to score. And then you've got to find somewhere to use. Mm. Um, he really has got the gift of the gab, that fellow. So I think our lives were probably a lot easier because of that. Um, he talked his way out of the most extraordinary things. Yeah. So he often wouldn't get arrested because he would talk his way out of it. Um, the worst bit was hanging out, having to go shoplifting, getting arrested before you've had your first taste of the day because, you know, because the cops hate junkies. So they will make you sit in the cells (sighs) as long as they possibly can, six, eight hours before they'll let you go. Mm. And that is the worst. So, you know, the first kind of money of the day is always the most anxious because, yeah, the last thing you want is to get arrested and then spend the rest of the day in the cells because that sucked. What were you stealing and who were you selling it to? There were varying stages, right? We lived in my friend's dead mum's house for a while in Villawood near the detention centre. Mm -hmm. And so we used to throw pot and grog and cigarettes over the fence for all the people. (laughs) Yeah. People in there. But look, we had varying degrees of kind of manageability, I guess. Probably the best scheme that we got onto was hiring taxi drivers to drive us around. So we'd pay them 50 bucks an hour. I mean, they knew exactly what we were doing and they'd let us use in their cab. And we were living in hotels. I doubt we were paying the bills for the hotels. I remember kind of leaving in the middle of the night more than once 
it was largely things like razor blades and film, like that stuff that is kind of high value. For cameras? Yeah. Before we had our Before we had phones, phones everywhere. Yeah. So going out to people in the street, do you want to buy film? Yeah, I don't think we, I think we always had like a fence ah. from memory. I think that he started selling stuff to, because you know, Parramatta Road, lots of stuff falls off the back of a truck yeah. on Parramatta Road. So he kind of always had contacts. Look, we hit on all sorts of schemes. Like there was a point where you could fill up a trolley in Woolies mm. and kind of get it out of a checkout and just keep going and no one would kind of notice or come after you. You know, I remember going to Maya and putting on about 15 pairs of Calvin Klein underwear and then wearing them all out of the shop. And they'd be resold? Yeah, they'd yeah. be resold. Probably not the ones on the bottom. I get it. No, I get it. Yep, but maybe the enough. rest of them. Um, <laughs> we had a whole lot of tools to kind of get the dye tags and the beepers off them. You know, I remember walking out of Maya one day. I won't say which one. I was banned for life from Maya David Jones High Point. Northlands, Eastlands, <laughs> Southland, Bunnings, probably Woolworths and Coles as well. Anyway, I actually had an undercover come up to me who totally was onto me and would sometimes come up and go, blah, blah, get out. You know you're not allowed in here. Yeah. Just get out. Whatever it is, put it down and go. We also got onto a thing of doing jewellery shops. So our little mate was young and he was very little, so he used to go into the toilets in a shopping centre, go into the roof, in the toilet, wait there until the shopping centre was closed. Yeah, yeah. Um, Come out with a sledgehammer, put a hole in the shop window of the jewellery shop and then kind of grab all the stuff. They don't leave any of those things in the windows anymore. No. You know, I mean, obviously I'm a good law-abiding citizen these days and a lot of that stuff is absolutely do not condone. When we moved to Melbourne... Because we came down here to get clean, of course, and we'd been here for maybe two hours mm -hmm. and we're like, ah, not today though. Definitely tomorrow, not today. But didn't know where to go. So I went into Coburg Police Station when it used to be on Bell Street mm -hmm. and approached the charge sergeant and said, officer, uh, I've just come from Sydney. I'm looking for my sister. She's a heroin addict and I don't know where to find her. I've got no idea oh about where to start looking. Can you help me? And he said, oh, yeah, go to Russell Street. I reckon you'll probably find her there. And I was like, thank you so much, officer. And he was like, no, I really hope you find your sister. Only an addict would think about going into the cop shop to ask them where to get on. Absolutely. Within probably three months, I'd been arrested and I had to report to that cop shop. And so one day, of course, I walked in, smashed. He's like, eh, found your sister. I was uh. like, I totally did. Thank I you. I sure did. Yeah. Meanwhile, speaking of your sister, how's she travelling? Yeah, look, we didn't have, I didn't talk to them really. There was one Christmas we were living in a hotel in Cabra and I'd rung her and asked her to come over for Christmas Day and I think she'd been there for maybe half an hour before I asked her for money and, like, I can still see the look on her face because, I mean, I had every intention in the world of being a better person, right, mm -hmm. and of not being that person. But by the same token, like, using is incredibly selfish and self-obsessed and self-seeking. So, you know, we um, I ended up on a suspended sentence in Sydney, which is why I moved to Melbourne. At the end, I was using about $2,000 a day, a me, day, on heroin. That's wow. just me. Yeah. So we had a five grand between us habit. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot. And the pressure is a yeah. lot. Yeah. 
we live with his mum and I opened her drawer. So when I was using, I was always quite, um, probably a bit of an anomaly. I always read like Time magazine and New Scientist and nonfiction books. So I'd get arrested and then the police would sort of sit with me and be like, you're real, like you are like no junkie I've ever met. And then they'd end up, you know, on some speech about you really should do more with your life. You're clearly really smart. You could do heaps of better things. I guess we always convinced ourselves that like what we were doing was a lot better than what the average kind of Joe going to work, come home, have dinner, watch TV, go to bed, wake up, do it again. Sounded awful. So anyway, at that point, so it was the late 90s and I opened up his mum's drawer. She'd been in a really severe car accident and was like, she's got a drawer full of OxyContin. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'd just read an article in Time Brilliant. about hillbilly heroin. Um, so we started selling it in St Kilda as gear. So walking up and down Grey Street, selling, you know, OxyContin tablets as heroin. So that was quite a good rort. That is a good little earner. It was earner. great for a while. Did she miss them? Uh, no, she um, is also not a very nice person. And so we ended up kind of as a runner for her. So she wanted cash is what she wanted. Yeah. So we kind of had to keep making money for her. It was a bit weird. Mm. You know, this kind of 70-year-old pensioner and we were like her druggy slaves selling her, you know, pharmaceuticals on the street of St Kilda. Yeah. Did you do any jail time? Uh, look, I only ever did like remand waiting for bail time. Went to Mullawa in Sydney, the women's prison, um, for a few days, sick as a dog, because um, I was known to be a heroin addict. So they put you in a plastic jumpsuit uh -huh. and they hose you off, literally, which is exactly what it sounds like. So you're in with other people who are hanging out. Yeah. They didn't really medicate in those days. Look, what I did do is I got on the methadone program for that very reason, because if you're on the methadone program and you get arrested, they have to dose you and then you don't hang out. So up there for thinking. Good. Um, but also then you change to a chemist, right? Yeah, that Then is you have the to problem. go to the same chemist every day to get, pick up your methadone. If you don't show up, they'll kick you off and it's all sorts of dramas. It was seven bucks? Was it seven bucks a Yeah, a it's serve? a dispensing fee. I think it still is. Yeah, I think it has been for a million years. Because yeah. I always think, how is it worth it? Because you've got thieves coming through the door every yeah, day. Yeah, which is what we used to do, pinch stuff from the chemist all the time. Of course you are. I, yeah. I guess it works out for the, their seven bucks a day. I don't know, it must. There's a crisis. Oh, no, there's absolutely a crisis in Victoria of doctors who won't prescribe because they don't want these people in there. They're hard work clinics. Mate. They are. There was Dr. Freeman in North Melbourne mm -hmm. who was, uh, you know, he went to jail. For your Medicare, you could get Valium. For a blowjob, he'd give you the Oxynorms. And then you'd just pay him cash for whatever you wanted. Like, so he used to see 80 junkies a day. I think I don't think he saw any other people who weren't using. He was notorious. He was so notorious that um, chemists wouldn't fill his scripts, including the chemist next door to his practice wouldn't fill his scripts. So we'd moved to Melbourne. We were living with his mother, who is a really unpleasant person. Yeah. Um, and by this point, you know, I was using my big brain to play video games and steal and I spent the rest of the time in our bedroom. The cops were kind of closing in. So, you know, there was a day when we got followed from where we were living to various shopping centres. 
then to Footscray, to sell it all, then back to Fitzroy. We got pulled over on Victoria Street in peak hour traffic and I got strip searched on Victoria Street. No. <laughs> peak hour traffic. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. How oh, we used to get strip searched all the time. In public? Yeah. How do they do that? They just do it. They like literally get you nude? Yeah. On the nude. footpath? Yeah. Nude. I did not know that. Yeah. They used to do it in, so in Cabramatta, there were a few restaurants in those days mm-hmm. where you could go in, buy your drugs. They'd give you a can of RC Cola mm-hmm. to walk out with so it looked like you'd made a purchase. But, of course, the cops knew. So you'd walk out of the restaurant and you'd be picked up straight away and they would want to search you. They'd go through your hair, they'd go through your mouth, they'd make you squat oh. um, and they would strip search you on the street. Jesus. Uh, they used to happen like five times a day because we had to go back and score. So I would, you have to swallow the drugs, then you have to get strip searched then you have to drive off and then vomit it up again. Yeah. Then use, then go and make more money, come back, buy the gear, get strip search, <sighs> vomit it all back up. Oh, it's a life. I tell you what, mm. glamorous. Mm. So when they strip search you, they can't actually penetrate you, no. but they can get you to squat and cough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, okay. Oh, and look, I mean, again, I was 19, 20. They were a couple of billy cops. Like, you're going to do what they tell you to do. So that day was a bit shit. Um, so the house started getting raided. On that day when we got arrested on Victoria Street, they'd gone and raided. So we'd sold a whole lot of stuff and they'd raided like the place where we sold the stuff, which was a shop on Sydney Road. They'd raided the place where we went and got the gear from and then kept us because they weren't going to give us bail. And he and I were in separate rooms and I I was really sick, but I wasn't giving up nothing. Maybe eight hours. It was probably midnight. They opened the door and I heard him say, just tell them. I already told them hours ago. And you know what? He did. And uh, they gave us back the money because, again, could sell snow to the Eskimos, this dude. So they gave us back all the cash that that they totally knew we had just fenced all the stolen stuff for. So luckily enough, we could go and get on. So, yeah, look, for me, the police were kind of closing in, like we were getting raided. They came in at 4 a.m. one morning. That was really irritating. They took our gear. That was also really irritating. You know, then his mum turns into a nutbag. Our crimes were getting worse, like the things that we had to do to kind of earn money. Yeah, did you ever hurt anybody? Uh, No. Uh, not, look, not physically, but, you know, we had guns and stuff like that. Um, so the boyfriend living with his mum, his sister was living with us as well. She had started going to AA and she was about six months sober because, I mean, again, addiction, very strong. One day he was going out to make, well, we were going out to make money and I was like, actually, you know what? I am fucking tired. I don't want to do it today. I can't. I just can't do it today. And he was like, oh, do you mean like you're going to stop? And I was like, no, idiot. I'm just mean. I want you to bring the drugs home, but I'm not going out. So, you know, I stayed home and watched like Judge Judy or something, you know, and his sister ended up saying, "Mm, I was going to go to a meeting. Do you want to come? Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, yeah, sounds awful. And she's like, there is actually NA for drug addicts. And in those days, phone line. So she ran up the phone line. Guess what? There's a meeting starting in half an hour around the corner in Coburg on a Thursday night. Let's go. And I was like, oh. 
So I went over to Coles and shoplifted a whole lot of stuff and then drank all this chocolate milk and then vomited all over myself. (laughs) Went to the meeting, covered in spew. And look, I was very smashed, but people were really nice to me, which was weird because, yeah, I I literally was covered in vomit. There are still quite a lot of people who were at that meeting and remember it quite vividly. Mm -hmm. And... I, look, again, I don't totally remember, but at some point we must have gone out for coffee afterwards and this chick who'd used a lot of speed, so, you know, junkie, speed, whoa, it was very intense. There was a lot of words. Mm-hmm. But I heard her talk about this rehab, the Self-Help Addiction Resource Centre in Glen Huntley, which was for young people, shark. Anyway, fast forward a few whatevers in court, 50-ish charges, a lot of charges. Yeah. Um, I vaguely remember the magistrate saying something along the lines of, if you come back, bring your toothbrush because you're not going home. So they organised me to go to detox to Das West over in Footscray. I did five days. They were awful to me because I had such a habit. I was really unbelievably sick and vomiting. And so I kept vomiting up all the meds that they were giving me. And so I was like, no, this, none of this is helping because you can see the pills are all on the floor. The numb ended up saying you're on bail, like I'm going to call the cops to come and take you away because you're a nightmare. Um, And I left and went home and used and I think probably overdosed because that's what happens. And then I went back maybe a couple of weeks later, stayed straight into Shark, which is um, kind of based on the therapeutic community model, but it's also a supporter to come. Um, One of my besties is the CEO now. Great service in Glen Huntley. Lots of young people get clean. And, you know, rehab was everything I, you know, you would imagine that it would be. It was really intense. I probably hadn't appreciated that I had a massive benzos habit as well. Okay. So I was probably taking 50 or 60 Valium a day. But that doesn't even register, right? I took 200 Valium in to detox with me and my jocks and was just kind of giving them away like lollies. One of the other, you know, apparently there was a story of them all kind of falling out of my undies <laughs> while I was walking up to my bedroom. The last time I used, because uh, in Shark you would get optioned out is what it's called. You'd have to go out for kind of seven days and have a think about what you'd done and then decide whether you want to come back with clean screens. The last time I used, I used more gear than I'd ever used in my life, probably enough to kill me really. And I didn't sleep, which is absolutely not what you use heroin for. You absolutely do not use it, not to sleep. Um, And I was awake for three days. It was so painful, so like spiritually, emotionally, psychologically agonising. Which again is the opposite of what it's supposed to be. Exactly. It's really sad when the drugs stop working. Well, it means you've outgrown it though, doesn't it? That that last time you used, did Mm. you feel that? Did you feel that, oh, fuck. I've outgrown it. That's kind of a painful. I was really sad. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a mourning sort of period. But, you know, again, 12-step, focus on one at a time. And, you know, I guess I didn't really know that recovery was sneaking up on me. And then by the time I'd been in rehab for about six months, uh, at first I couldn't go to Centrelink and the supermarket and the bank all in one day. That was absolutely beyond me. But, you know, I slowly started to be able to kind of pick up the pieces of my life. 12 months started working at the um, Prostitutes Collective in St Kilda in the NSP. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Barking Street. Yep, Yep. doing the Needle and Syringe program, Mm -hmm. uh, driving around St Kilda until the wee hours of the morning. I probably wouldn't recommend that now to someone who's only 12 months clean, but at the time it was great for me. 
and started working at the rehab. And I guess that I was, again, lucky because I'm always, I have always been that person. So the manager of the rehab loved me. And, you know, I had like extra responsibility and they gave me one of the cars, which again is mental. But if people hadn't made allowances for me and if I hadn't been kind of, if people hadn't bent the rules for me, I don't know that I'd be here. The president of the board approached me one day and said, I'm going to call you Sirius. Do you know what Sirius is? And again, before Google. So I was like, because it was 2001 when I got clean. And then next time I saw him, I was like, it was one of the boats in the first fleet. And he's like, "Mm, no. (laughs) Anyway, I eventually came back and was like the brightest star in the sky. And he was like, bingo. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Which again, I really clearly remember that, you know, that people were always quite invested in me. But I did lots of meetings and I did lots of, um, I guess, what we call service. So lots of contributing to the fellowship, you know, opening meetings, got involved in the kind of bigger hierarchy and represented, you know, my meeting, then represented Victoria. And I guess for me, I fundamentally understand that I'm an addict. I get that lots of people have hang-ups about the language. I'm pretty free about the use of the word junkie because I absolutely was. I've got the, you know, hectic track marks still to prove it. Mm-hmm. I'll be 22 years clean and sober on the 1st of October this year. But, you know, I'm still an addict. If I picked up tomorrow, I have no doubt I'd need to go back to detox within you know, the blink of an eye. Your line of work now. I guess it's the out-of-home care system. Yeah, and then a lots of time in the in the best rehabs in Australia. Yep. Lots of time working in AOD. Yeah. And so what do you do now? Uh, I work in um, mental health. So I work in a PHN, you know, primary health network funded role. We're a step down mental health service. So people who are acutely unwell uh, would end up with the hospital-based tertiary services. We're the kind of step back in acuity from that. Lots of depression, anxiety, personality disorders, uh, people who are quite unwell with things like um, schizophrenia or bipolar who are stable would come to us, but if they were unwell, they would go to the hospital. Yeah, so you're still about service a lot. Yeah. Helping others. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You have to combat that selfishness it, because it's such a wicked part of being an addict is about being self-serving and self-seeking. So you know, to be useful to others is very important for my spiritual wellness. Thank you so much to our guest today, who, as we said earlier, has chosen to remain anonymous. But she will be back for part two of this story in the second of this week's episodes of Australian True Crime. In that episode, we'll hear a happy ending of sorts when our guest defies the odds of the Australian judicial system and gets her day in court. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 YARN on 139276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.